What I'm going to do tonight is um, somewhat um, uh, your fault. Uh, actually, it's all your fault. And um, I'm going to tell you why it's your fault. But it's, it's kind of a, um, um, an additional week of our study of um, the book of Romans. Somebody asked me tonight, when did I start? <clears throat> there you go. Uh, when did I start this study of uh, Romans? And I don't have the slightest idea. And they have written in their Bibles it was 1999. I, I don't remember. Um, but we're going to add another week. I'm in no hurry, <laughs> obviously. Um, but I'm going to add another week. And, um, and, let, and let, me, let me, first of all, remind you of where we are in, in Romans. Of course, the great theme of this chapter is the promise that is made in verse 1. That there is therefore now no condemnation. Um, and that's what, that, that is the governing thought of the uh, entire chapter. This wonderful promise that though we struggle and fail and disappoint and are inconsistent and all those things which are true of all of us, we, we wrestle with the sin, the fle- with, with, the, with the flesh, uh, the world and the devil, and, uh, but we do so without fearing condemnation. That is a wonderful thing. That is, uh, that is for those who are in Christ. This is something that, um, that is um, ours to claim and ours to enjoy. And then in beginning in verse 5, um, Paul, ever the, um, uh, the, the, his desire is ever for clarity. He wants to make sure that uh, no one who does not have rights to claim this does. And so he sets out in verse 5 and following, really through verse 15, but primarily through 5 through 8, he sets out to compare those who have a right to claim this and those who don't. He, um, he talks about, um, he gives you some descriptions of those who should not hide beneath this wonderful promise because they have no right to do so. And the first thing that he mentions has to do with a certain mindset or a, um, uh, a mindedness, um, I guess. And I, and I found a verse this, not I found it, I was in my devotions this morning, and I, <clears throat> I want you to see this because I, I'm not sure this is real clear. Maybe this will help. If you've got your Bibles open, turn to Mark chapter 8. There is a fleshly mindedness that is, um, that is descriptive of those who have no right to claim this. And Jesus makes a statement, and it's a very famous statement. It's when um, he is saying he's about to go to the cross, and Peter takes him aside to rebuke him. And, and, and Jesus says, you know, Peter, get behind me, Satan. And verse 33 is, is what I want you to look at, Mark eight thirty-three. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan. And here it is. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Peter, you are... um, There is a mindedness that um, that is wrong about you. It's not that they simply think about X-rated movies. It's a it's a it's a mindset. It's a it's a way of um, 
Uh, we talked about what you do with your um, with your privacy when when there's no distraction. What do you what do, what do you think about? It's it's a it's a way of viewing the world. Um, there's a mindedness that is characteristic of the Christian, and there is a mindedness that is characteristic of the non-Christian. The second thing the text mentions as the, that is descriptive uh, about um, hostile. Um, this, this man who has no right to claim this is that he's hostile to God. And I, and I told you last week how, how, um, um, how angry that makes men who are moral and, and law-abiding and, and um, thinking of themselves as fine, upstanding citizens. And, and they very well may be. But um, a moralist is very proud of his morality. And uh, in that morality, which he seeks to use as his, as his way to uh, wrangle a place in heaven out of the cl- clutches of God, he is hostile to God. He's an enemy of God's. A third thing that is mentioned is, of course, that this is um, uh, characteristic of him being in a, in a posture of spiritual death, both temporally and eternally. Death is what characterizes him. Um, and then we talked about, this is what we talked about last week, that uh, he is not subject to the law of God, nor can he be. We talked about inability as opposed to unwillingness. But he is not able. Uh, there is nothing that he can do about his, this thing. Uh, he is by nature uh, born into this world, ill prepared to leave it, and there's nothing that he can do. To change this mindedness. Um, there's, there's a couple of things that I want to present tonight. But this, this fifth one is, is the thing that, that is mentioned in verse 7. That he is not subject to the law of God. <laughs> now, um, that's where I want to spend our time tonight. Just on that clause. Not subject to God's law. Now, guys, um, if you if you were to talk to um, a room full of religionists or a room full of people that gathered in any church, perhaps ours, there's going to be folks in there that would take great offense to this being uh, descriptive of them. Well, of course, I'm uh, I'm uh, subject to the law of God. I'm uh, you know I pay my taxes and I had my, I've always been faithful to my wife and I never ran around on her and I give you know I give my customers a, a dollar's work for a dollar bait and you know I'm I'm a law-abiding citizen. <clears throat> there again, ladies and gentlemen, there is there is a disconnect as to what the apostle has in mind, and that's what I want to spend my time on. Uh, that the one little clause, but uh, again, it's spawned by uh, an email I got yesterday, and I'll tell you about it in just a second. But let's do this first. I want you to open your Bibles to Psalm 1. All I'm seeking to do tonight is give you data um, and a description of this, of this one characteristic. That uh, <clears throat> the man who has no right to claim this blessed promise is a man that's not subject to God's law. That's, as I, I hope you see, is contained in Romans chapter 8, uh, verse 7. Now, we're in Psalm 1. Guys, most people who know things about uh, the Bible or, or write commentaries on, on, on the Bible, if they're writing one on the Psalms, 
they take an extra special amount of care and attention when, they're, when it comes to Psalm 1. Because um, Psalm 1 is not just the first in the sequence of 150. Psalm 1 is in, in large ways, in many ways, it's, it's the introduction to the entire psalmody. Now, maybe that's a, that's a new word for you. Um, it's nothing but a, a noun that's talking about the psalms, the collection of the psalms. And, and, and Psalm 1, in, in, in a lot of ways, introduces all of the major themes that's going to be contained in this thing in its entirety. What you have in Psalm 1 is a, is a contrast, a, 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 um, a comparison of two kinds of men. Notice, blessed is the man. And then look at uh, verse 4. The ungodly are not so. And, and much of the Psalms, guys, is just that. It is a comparison of the, the man of ungodliness with the man of righteousness. And you see the conflict. There's so much of that in, in, the, in the Psalms that David writes. He's constantly talking about his enemies. There's the ungodly and then there's the godly. And, and what you get here is an introduction to several themes that are worked out in the course of 150 Psalms. Now, having said that, um, there are several little descriptions that you get here, uh, characteristics of the blessed man, of the godly man. And I just want you to look at one of them. It's in verse 2. Blessed is the man who, who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the sea of the scornful, but his delight. His delight is in the law of the Lord. Um, read on. It's the same verse, I think. Yes. And in his law, he meditates day and night. Now, guys, you understand what I'm saying? Um, this psalm is describing a godly man. And here's one of the foremost characteristics of that man. He is a man who takes pleasure. He takes delight um, in, in the law of God. He, he meditates in that thing um, day and night. You know, um, there is a statement uh, that, um, that is made. Don't turn here, but this is um, it's in Psalm 119. Um, I think you know a little bit about Psalm 119, but here's, this is verse 136. Rivers of water run down from my eyes because men do not keep your law. I wail and grieve over the fact, says this psalmist. Rivers of waters run down from my eyes. Because I live in a culture that despises your law. Because you see, the godly man, he's the one that delights. He meditates in this thing day and night. Now, guys, when I, when I came to this, oh, some years ago, um, I, I wondered, in verse 2, I'm back in Psalm 1, 
why, why the psalmist put it this way. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his... You know, I don't know that I would have used the word law there. I mean, very frankly, ladies and gentlemen, what do you meditate in? I mean, I bet you many of you spend some time in meditation. What do you meditate in? I mean, if I were going to use, if I were going to write this, I wouldn't have used the word law. I would have used the word word. That is, and in his word, he meditates day and night. Or use the word truth. Uh, in his truth. He meditates day and night. He spends time pondering and, and considering and, and like a cow chews its cud. This guy, he, he, he uh, is kind of chewing on, on God's word. But here the psalmist says, he meditates on law. Why? Well, I, my answer is purely speculative, ladies and gentlemen, but, but, but here's my answer to my question. <laughs> The godly man is the man that sees this book as law. Tell him I'm, I, I'm busy. I, I can't answer. Um, um, but he looks at this book as the authoritative source of his life. When it comes to definitions, he draws them from this book. When it comes to his opinions, they are shaped by this book. He sees himself as somebody who lives in subjection to this book, which for him is law. And he takes pleasure in that. He's delighted that there's something provided so that he can have structure and, and direction and substance and, and meaning to his life. You know, I wondered about this, but I found that God addressed it. And therefore, now I wonder no longer. Because this thing is the final arbiter of the truth for me. As one who chases after Jesus Christ, this is where I come to get my definitions. This is where I go to find out right versus wrong, etc., etc. This book, in my mind, says the godly man, is law. So at his very essence, the godly man is one who yields. He yields himself to a higher law. He, as opposed to this guy, subjects himself to law and finds that absolutely delightful to do so. <laughs> and then he looks around his culture and he sees that it's spurned and it's scoffed at and rivers of tears flow from his eyes because men take this thing that is so precious to him and trample it. Now, go with me another step. Then I'll tell you why I'm doing this. I want you to go to Leviticus chapter 18. When's the last time you spent some good time meditating on the book of Leviticus? Um, there, there really are some wonderful parts in the book of Leviticus. And I hope, I mean, for instance, chapter 16 is a description of the Day of Atonement. And, and if you, uh, if, I mean, if you want to skip the rest of the book of 
Leviticus. You don't have anybody's permission to do so. But uh, don't skip verse, uh, chapter 16. It, it's, it's wonderful. But chapter 18. I want, you to, I want you to just follow me. I'm not going to read this all. I'm just going to read the first three verses. Leviticus 18. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You tell them that. Moses, you go tell them. Keep reading. According to the doings of the land of Egypt, where you dwelt, you shall not do. And according to the doings of the land of Canaan, where I'm bringing you, you shall not do. <laughs> Nor shall you walk in their ordinances. I lied. Verse 4. You shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk in them. I am the Lord your God. Now, guys, if you go through the rest of uh, Leviticus 18, you're going to find that I am the Lord your God several times. But do you notice, generally speaking, principally speaking, panoramically speaking, you have a, you have a bracket. You have, a, you have a, maybe a, you have, you have something in the middle that's bracketed by two statements. I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. In the middle, what does God claim? He says, now listen, you're leaving Egypt. I don't want you to live like that. And you're going to Canaan. I don't want you to live like that either. I don't want you to live like that. I, want you to live like, I don't want you to be Egyptian. I don't want you to be Canaanitish. Because I got a whole new thing for you. I don't want you to obey anybody's statutes. But mine. And the basis of that appeal is simply. I am the Lord your God. That's it. You know, when you're trying to talk your kids into, well, now, darling, the reason that you should eat those green beans is because, you know, if you don't eat your green beans, you're going to grow up to look like Dr. Young, and you wouldn't want that now, would you? I mean, eat those blasted greens. And you, and you, well, I'm not doing Well, let me tell you why you need to get in the car, darling. Now, you know, come on, because we all got to go down to the mall and get you some uh, $95 shoes. And, oh, uh, please, darling, come to, you know, do what Daddy tells you to do. And come on, let me, let, me tell, let me explain to you all of my reasons as to why I want you to do this. None of that, ladies and gentlemen. God steps forward and he says, I don't want you to do that. And I don't want you to do that. I want you to do this. I'm the Lord your God. That's it. That's all you get. Now tell me this, my brother and sister in Christ. Is that enough for you? It sure ought to be. That ought to be the end of the discussion. Once you find out what he said, that's enough. If I could be crude, shut up. That's all you get, guys. By the way, I, just because I don't want to embarrass anybody in here, you ought to read the rest of the chapter. You know what's being discussed? Bestiality, homosexuality, incest, don't uncover the nakedness of your mother, <laughs> don't uncover the nakedness of your sister, 
translated, you know, I mean, do I need to, you can't sleep with your mother, you can't sleep with your sister, uh, you don't want to do this, you don't want to do that, I'm telling you, don't do that, don't do any of this, don't do that, don't do the other. And the, the reasoning that's provided, simply this, I'm the Lord your God. Not only should that be enough, ladies and gentlemen, it ought to be our delight. And it ought to be the thing that we're most eager to discover. We meditate in it day and night. We are a people. We don't want to live like that. We don't want to live like that. And the reason that we don't want to live like that is because God said don't do it. Now, guys, now now I'm going to let you know why I'm doing this. You have caused a big old mess. I hope you're happy. Because you have made a big controversy. In fact, it is so big that we have just begun the ramifications of it. And you know what you did? That is, most of you, I can't speak for all of you, but most of you, you know what you did? You voted for George W. Bush for president. And now, ladies and gentlemen, you are being vilified for the views that you hold dear. Would you like to hear some of them? Christians who helped elect the president as a group of, they, they describe Christians who helped elect the president as a group of knuckle-dragging Neanderthals whose aims are nothing less than anti-American. By the way, uh, th- th- this is coming out of the New York Times and the Washington Post. This has just been in a week. Um, the New York Times ran an op-ed by famed historian Gary Wills, who questioned whether a people who believe in the virgin birth of Jesus can be called an enlightened nation. You troublemakers. America, listen to this. America now shares more in common with Al-Qaeda and Saddam's Sunni loyalists than modern Europe. If you believe in the Bible's account of Jesus' birth, you are on par with terrorists who killed 3,000 Americans on September the 11th. Mr. Bush was elected by Christians who are hell-bent on legislating social issues and extending the boundaries of religion so hard that it, that it felt as if we were rewriting the Constitution. You are called fundamentalists on numerous occasions. Nasty, wicked word. George Bush and Christian radicals want to destroy American government. Maureen Dowd... Uh, I think she's in the Washington Post. Uh, Yes, Washington Post. Um, Accused Mr. Bush of taking America into another dark age where we replace science with religion and facts with faith. (laughs) How appropriate that is, based on the wild man that was preaching on Sunday. 
Um, the new evangelicals challenge science because they have been stirred up to object to social. I, I want you to hear this one because I'm going to come back to this one. The new evangelicals challenge science because they have been stirred up to object to social engineering on behalf of society's most vulnerable, the poor, the sick, and the sexually different. Store that away. I'm going to come back. Dowd also accused the president of running a jihad along the fault lines of fear, ignorance, and religious rule. Republican Christians are painted as angry, hate-filled, science-loathing, right-wing beasts. Now, really, that's what caused me to do what I'm doing tonight. And, I, and what I've just done with Psalm 1 is just to set the stage, ladies and gentlemen. Because um, we are a people, uh, hopefully, that find ourselves and our delight in the law of God. Um, but what happens when God is robbed of that role? Well, um, I think Paul tells us something about what happens when, when um, I mean, in his description of the man who is, that we're describing here, one of the things he says is that he's not subject to God's law. And thus, he becomes a law unto himself. The great word, ladies and gentlemen, in, um, in America today, or the great desire, not, maybe not the word, but the great desire is autonomy, which you know to be, means self-rule. Um, a belief in absolutes, which I was just pleading for for the first 20 minutes of my time here. I told you that that was a wonderful thing. I took you to Psalm 1. I took you to Leviticus 18. And I said that we believe in a moral, uh, a divine moral order. We believe in a divine moral absolutes. But here's why we're being accused. We're being accused that when you believe, when you're a fundamentalist like me and you believe in moral absolutes, that is inevitably going to lead to oppression and injustice. Um, because this is, this is how it goes. If you believe in absolutes, like I do, and I hope you, but if you believe in absolutes, here's what you do. Uh, according to um, some of these op-ed pieces, you, um, because you think you know what's right, um, that means that other people who don't agree with you are wrong. And uh, then it is a very, very thin line or a very small step to take that because we are then right and they are wrong, then we must force them to get in line with us. So, if you hold on to moral absolutes, it's inevitably going to lead to oppression and injustice. That's what's being said, ladies and gentlemen. Now, here's what I want you to consider. What happens when no absolutes exist? When there is no divine moral order? What happens? I want to suggest to you, ladies and gentlemen, that the opposite of holding to absolutes is far worse. Let me give you an example. Let's say you go on a missions trip with uh, Gracie Van and you visit a country. Um, um, we have a man here tonight, ladies and gentlemen, who went on a missions trip and met his wife on the mission field. Now, that should be a motive for you to, well, maybe some of you. 
Others of you already with a wife, don't try that. But uh, um, uh, So you go on a mission field and you notice, let's say you go to China. You go to China and you notice there that women are oppressed. And you say, um, that's wrong. And I'm going to change, I'm going to work hard to get that changed because that is oppressing women. And it's not right. Who says? Who says it's not right? Do you know, ladies and gentlemen, that you're thinking like a, um, a Western, white, um, Protestant? You know, that's, I mean, just because in your culture that it's, uh, it's oppressing women, it doesn't necessarily mean it's oppressing women in this culture. How is it that you got the, 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 um, uh, the, the, the right to define what is right and wrong? Because um, everyone must be free to decide what's right and wrong for them. And that sounds so tolerant, doesn't it? You bigoted evangelicals. What you do with your fundamentals is that you oppress. But I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, if you remove the law of God, a divine moral order, if you remove that, what you have created is an immense, autocratic nightmare. Because then, everybody gets to determine what's right in their own experience. And so, going back to my illustration of visiting China, you have no right to plead for human rights. You know, I, I told you I was going to come back to that little piece. This woman talked about how how we evangelicals are... Uh, 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 where are they? Um, yes. Uh, challenge science because they've been stirred to, up to object to social engineering on behalf of society's most vulnerable, the poor, the sick, and the sexually different. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Lady, tell me this, lady. Could you possibly tell me this? Where did you get that ethic, huh? Your ethic is, uh, is, uh, rather, uh, Protestantized and, um, and, uh, and Westernized. I don't think like that. Do you see, ladies and gentlemen, what you do when you, you decide that the law of God is something that you will not subject yourself to? Tell me. What makes your culture right and the other culture wrong? Your assertion of a woman being oppressed is just that. It's an assertion. It's basically, ladies and gentlemen, a power play. You know whose morals rule when God's law doesn't? The one with the biggest army. All, once you remove God's law, gang, all law is based on human opinion. And we sit back and we say, well, duh, Jimmy, don't be ridiculous. We know that women are equal to men. I mean, we know what's right. 
That's nothing but a raw assertion of your power. Whose opinion rules, ladies and gentlemen? No, God leads to the naked use of power. We are being accused of producing and creating oppression because um, because we believe in an absolute, ladies and gentlemen. We, be, we believe in fundamentals, don't we? And uh, we are being vilified as fundamentalists and who want to lead another jihad. Well, gang, I say this and I'll quit. It depends what your fundamentals are. What are our fundamentals? What, is the, what are the fundamentals of the Christian church? Well, let me think. Um, uh, one of the fundamentals is that the leader of our movement prays for his enemies and he asks that they would be forgiven as they are crucifying him. Um... Here's another fundamental. The lawgiver prays, well, it prays for and pays for. He pays for the penalty of the lawbreaker. That's one of our fundamentals. It's as if the lawgiver, the judge, leaves his bench and becomes judged. The judge takes the judgment. The judge is judged. That's one of our fundamentals. And then the judge who is judged turns to his followers and asks that they love their enemies. And he asks those of us who follow him, to accept persecution from those who hate him and us. Ladies and gentlemen, I say to you that the only hope for any social justice, the only hope for any, any kind of human rights, is that you and I exhibit love for the law of God. And when we find it broken, we find ourselves grieved that men live out their days not subject to His law. The last thing that He wants is to someone, for someone to impose law on Him. And I say to you, my dear friend, the reason that you love it it's because your will has been bent. Your will has been made submissive. Your will has been caught up and overcome by grace. And so we as a people now find our delight is in the law of God and in yielding to the great, gracious lawgiver. My friends, there couldn't be a starker difference than that one. 
And because of that election, ladies and gentlemen, it has created a real fear of people who are law lovers. I remind you, the lawgiver has asked us to love them and even accept persecution at their hands. That would be a reflection of people who love the law and the lawgiver. Our Father, I do pray that you will use these thoughts to stimulate your people. I pray that uh, they might find great comfort in knowing that the, the, most, the safest, the, the most solid, the, the most um, intelligent position to be in is one that attributes all moral absolutes to the Lord God of heaven and earth. To do otherwise is to create pandemonium. Father, we love your law, but not because we're smarter than them. Not because we're qualitatively better. We love your law because your Holy Spirit has overtaken us. And we now find submission to you and your law our great delight. Grant us grace, O God, that that love for you and in your law might increase. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thanks and good night.